At first glance, John 9 is a story of a man who received his sight. He once was blind, but then he was able to see because of Jesus. It's a miracle. It's one of seven miraculous signs that are recorded in John's gospel that demonstrate the power and the identity of Jesus. Towards the end of the gospel, John says, these are recorded that you might believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so bringing sight to a blind man is exactly what you would expect from someone who in chapter 1 was proclaimed as the light that shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome the light. This word now made flesh. And then Jesus said of himself just a chapter earlier in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what you see in the book of John is that Jesus brings light. The light of his presence brings, uh, illuminates dark places. And for how many of us today, that's very comforting to us. Because we know what it's like to live in dark places. We know what it's like to be blinded by our sin and our selfishness. We know what it's like to be estranged from God and living in that darkness. We know what it's like to be at a place where we have nowhere to turn, where we've exhausted our options, and when darkness and evil and loss surrounds us, the good news of Jesus Christ is that He comes into those moments with the light of His presence, and He, and he illuminates them, and He shows us how to get out of those dark places and to find salvation in Him. And so, This is how we understand the light of Jesus in the book of John. But there's another function of light in John's account of Jesus' life. Not only does the light of Christ's presence illuminate dark places, but it brings clarity to places already lit. It brings clarity and it brings new perspective. And so I have a question for you today as we walk through John chapter 9. How does faith in Jesus provide a new perspective? How do you perceive the world? What is your worldview? How do you think about what's going on in the world and the problems that we face and the things that are going on every day? How does your faith in Jesus enhance that perspective, change that perspective, transform that perspective? How does living in the light of Christ's presence bring clarity to what's going on in our world. You see, have you ever heard the, the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? I, I feel that more and more as, as I get older. Sometimes I, I hand my phone to my son and I say, hey, can you make this work for me? Somebody's wanting me to do something on it and I don't know how to do it, but I know you do. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. When do followers of Jesus stop learning new tricks? And the correct answer is never. Like We're always learning new things. We're always having the light of Christ's presence bring clarity and new perspective to the things that we face in the world. You see, the reason for this is because of what we believe about salvation. At the core of what we believe about the salvation that is in Christ is that it is dynamic. It's not static. There's, there's two things that God does in salvation. The Apostle Paul talks about them in Romans 5, 6, and 7. He talks about justification. And this, is, this happens in a moment 
We are justified. We're made just as if we never sinned. We put our faith and we put our trust in Jesus. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. But then Paul goes on to talk about something called sanctification. And it happens in a moment when we surrender to the will of God and to the lordship of Christ, but it progresses every day. As we wake up each day, surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit, saying, Lord, how can I be more like you in this day? How can the decisions that I make, the choices that I make, the conversations that I have, how can those more clearly reflect your divine image in me? And it happens every day. We become more like Jesus every day. And John Wesley talked about this holistic view of salvation. He talked about justification and sanctification. He said, you know, we distinguish them, but we should never separate them. It's not like you get one or the other. It's all the whole package of what God is doing in our lives. We are being sanctified every day. We're learning new tricks. We're gaining new perspective. We're living in new clarity as the light of Christ's presence become more manifest in our, in our life. This is sanctification. And so at first glance, John 9 is a miracle story. Someone was lost, they were far from God, and they received their sight. But if we take a second glance, there's something else John is, is wanting us to quote-unquote see. For starters, I think John is, is asking a question, who is really blind in this story? I mean, who is it that can't see in, in John chapter 9? Perhaps this is more a story about the blindness of those who see. And so how does faith in Jesus change your perspective on the world? There's two groups of people in this story that are going to help us with that. And the first group is the disciples. So the story begins with Jesus walking along with his disciples, and they ask him a question. And this question embodies an ignorance of the, on the part of the disciples. They are ignorant to the suffering of this man and this thing that God wants to do in his life. John tells us that they ask a question. They say, Rabbi, like who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Why is it that, that he sinned? Or, or who, why is it that he's blind? Who sinned? And what they were doing is they were reflecting a, a first century understanding of suffering. If you saw someone suffering, if they had a disability or if something was wrong with them, the common assumption is that, well, they obviously did something wrong or their parents did something wrong. It's similar to our modern popular idea of karma. Hey, you got what was coming to you. You deserve that. You cut somebody off in traffic and then you got a ticket not too long after that. That's karma. You, you deserved it. There's a one-to-one -one correlation between what you do and the bad things that you experience. And in the first century, it was even more kind of hyper-focused than, than just our kind of common understanding of, of karma, which is not really a thing. It's just something we say to kind of make sense of what's going on in the world. But in the first century, the, the Jews also had this idea that like the severity of your suffering was connected to the depth of your sin. There was a correlation between how much you sinned and how much you suffered. And the Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible, they, they'd been actually struggling with this for a while because the book of Job specifically addresses this. 
You know, Job's friends come to him. Job's life is a mess. It's falling apart. Job's friends come. They say they're there to comfort him, but they weren't very comforting, were they? They said, Job, you've sinned. What is it that you've done wrong that your family's falling apart and the members of your family have died and you've lost all your wealth and all these bad things have happened? What is it that you've done wrong? And Job says, I, I haven't done anything wrong. I, I can't explain what's going on. And the point of the book of Job is, that, is to say that, that inexplicably, sometimes even the righteous suffer. We don't, we don't really know why, but even the righteous people suffer. And the message of Job, and really the message of the Bible, the Bible does very little to explain why we suffer, why someone might be born blind, but it does a lot of explaining and proclaiming who is present in our suffering. It doesn't answer the question of why, but it answers the question of who is there with us when we suffer. God is there, and He's present, and He's compassionate, and He's sovereign over all of it. And He's working all things out according to His plan of redemption. And so the disciples are sort of following into this common assumption that they've had, in many ways ignorant to the plight of the man and what he's going through. Instead of seeing a man who's suffering, instead of having compassion for him, they make it a theological conundrum. Maybe they even talk about it right in front of him. You kind of want to say to the disciples, look, it, he's, he's blind, he's not deaf. He can hear you talking about him. He's not your theological experiment. This is not a systematic theology classroom where you can talk about things as the abstract theological ideas. There's a person there. And he's suffering. And the disciples want to debate why. Was it because of his sin or was it because his parents sinned? And I wonder how many times we live in the same ignorance. I mean, ignorant to the suffering and unaware of the suffering that is around us. Maybe we make it theological, abstract ideas and we want to talk about why and, and we want to speculate as to what went wrong in their life that led them to experiencing homelessness or, or whatever they're going through. Instead, we should be thinking about how Jesus related to people in this situation, the kind of compassion and love that Jesus showed every time he encountered someone who was suffering. He did little to explain why, but he always made his presence known and his presence made the difference. And so Jesus said this to his disciples, ignorant of the man's suffering, he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that glory might be given to God through this man's life. You see, the disciples were operating under old assumptions. They were unaware, they were ignorant of what God was doing in Christ. This old order of things, this old order of explaining suffering it was passing away, and a new thing was, was happening. And I, I want us to, to make sure that we don't fall into the same mistake. I heard a phrase, and it stuck with me, and it sort of captures where I think discourse is in our culture. Someone used the phrase not too long ago, ideological silo. And they used the phrase to describe how people are making sense of the world. There's a a set of ideology that people 
subscribe to, and they, they use that set to make sense of everything that is going on in the world. And they're ignorant to anything outside of that ideological silo, or they're blind to it. And so John is asking the question, who's blind in this story? When we live in our ideological silos, are we exhibiting the same kind of ignorance that the disciples had, ignorant of this man's condition and his suffering? And I would say to, to those of us who run the risk of retreating to these silos, is that living in spiritual blindness, it prevents us from seeing the cost of ignorance. There is a cost associated with our ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. Ask a police officer when he pulls you over and you say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, I didn't know the the speed limit. I didn't see the posted signs. And they will tell you, friend, ignorance is not bliss. There's a cost to ignorance. And if we are blind to what is going on around us, we're going to miss the opportunity to fully live in the light of Christ's presence. Let me, let me sort of explain how I think this works out sometimes. I love history. I love reading about history. I, I think I'm, I'm so drawn to it because there's so much that we've lived through. There, there's so much that we've experienced. I know 2020 and 2021 and 2022, it, it feels like we're experiencing things we've never experienced before. Well, if you'll read your history, we've actually been here before. So I love history. And uh, recently I received a wedding invitation from a friend whose child is getting married. Uh, I'm going to be unable to go to the wedding, but the church is located, uh, like many churches or places in the state of South Carolina, on Jefferson Davis Highway. There's a lot of roads in South Carolina where I grew up named after the Confederacy's only president. Now, it's interesting that we would name so many streets and so many highways and so many schools after the Confederacy's only president because he was from Mississippi. Like, what did he do that was so great that we would name all these things in South Carolina after Jefferson Davis? First of all, he was a one-termer. And the country he was president of didn't last very long. And he horribly mismanaged a war. But we're going to name streets and schools and erect statues and do all kinds of things in South Carolina for this gentleman from the Magnolia State. And so the church is located there on Jefferson Davis uh, Highway, which, by the way, it's worth mentioning, I only hit two home runs in high school, one of which came off a pitcher from Jefferson Davis Academy. So the, the other came off a picture from Lee Academy, and I'll give you one guess as to which general that, that school was named after. So I really roughed up the Confederal generals when, when I was playing baseball. But we have a lot of material from Davis, and so I'm trying to figure out why we would name streets after him. And on the floor of the United States Senate, he said this in 1857, African slavery, as it exists in the United States, is a moral, a social and a political blessing, end quote. He believed it was sanctioned by the Bible and resolutely clung to a belief in white superiority. It's documented. It's history. We have it. It's there. 
And I have this ongoing conversation with another friend who likes history. And we have a really spirited text thread. And then when we're, we're together, we, we, we talk a lot. And, and he, he, he's a student of the Civil War in this period of history. And here's his contention. He says this. He says that, you know, Mark, it's, it's, it's really not right that you would judge generals and leaders of the Confederacy in the mid-1850s by these wild, progressive ideas of the 20th and the 21st century. They were, they were men of their time. They were operating under uh, assumptions of their time and, and worldviews of their time. And it's really unfair of you to judge them by these crazy, progressive standards that we have in the 20th and the 21st century. And what I say to that is, is that, you know, thinking that people are people and not property, or thinking that people are people and not three-fifths of a people, as the Supreme Court said in the Dred Scott decision, is not really a progressive idea. It's not a progressive idea now, and it really wasn't a progressive idea in the 1850s. You see, there was a bigger country, a bigger empire at the time, who had already dealt with this. In 1807, under the leadership of William Wilberforce, the British Parliament outlawed slavery in the British Empire. Now, you won't believe this, but they were a lot bigger than us then. And they had a whole lot more money than us then. And they had a whole lot more to lose by outlawing slavery than the South did in 1807. But in 1807, the British Empire outlawed slavery thanks to the efforts of Wilberforce, who was influenced by our theological ancestor, an Anglican pastor named John Wesley. And they decided this was a bad idea. They decided people were people created in the image of God. That was in 1807, the same year. Jefferson Davis was born in the state of Kentucky. And so I say this to you today. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss. We cannot be ignorant. We cannot be ignorant of, of suffering that is all around us. We can't turn a blind eye. And it's so easy for me here the comfort of Bentonville on a Sunday morning to point the finger at Jefferson Davis and people in the Confederacy. It's really easy for me. But what the Lord is saying to me is, what about who's suffering, who's, who's experiencing injustice now, today? Who are you walking by every day and like the disciples, you're making it a theological conundrum or some kind of abstract thing. You're not Seeing them the way I would want you to see them. Who is that today? And I thought about that a little bit. Some of you know that, that I just recently got back from a trip to the Holy Land. And we had uh, 20, uh, or we had 14 from our church go. We joined with some others. And so, so we, we, we just got done touring the Holy Land. And it's in the, the nation of Israel. And what you might not know about the nation of Israel is, is there's a lot of conflict going on there. There's a Palestinian state called the West Bank and Gaza, and they sort of operate inside the borders of Israel. And, and people of Palestinian descent who live in the West Bank, they don't really have all the same rights as people that were born in Israel. 
it's really complicated. You probably already know that. But I was there and, and, and saw it firsthand, and I saw how this one group of people who are of Palestinian descent, I saw how they were living, and I saw how Israelis were living, and I thought, this doesn't feel right. You know, I wasn't around in the 1850s when slavery was happening, but it feels similar. I wasn't around in the Jim Crow South. Some of you were. Maybe you can tell me. I've read about it because I like history. It feels similar to what I read about. I've never been to South Africa. I wasn't around during apartheid. But what I'm experiencing in the 21st century in Israel in this sort of tension between people of Palestinian descent and Israelis, it feels like all of that. And then it really snapped into focus when we were in Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank. And a gentleman named Nabil, who owned the hotel where we were staying, yes, we spent a night in the West Bank, by the way. A gentleman named Nabil said, hey, can I treat you to coffee? And he made me a coffee, and we sat down in his hotel, and we began to get to know one another, and he told me about his life, and he told me what it was like being a Palestinian Christian, and, and how that that, that group of people was shrinking every day and the things that he suffered and the same things that he went through and began to get a full picture of what was going on. And I was no longer ignorant to that kind of suffering. And isn't it interesting how when you come into close proximity with people, when you begin to hear their story, when you begin to hear what's going on in their life, you can no longer turn a blind eye to what's going on. And so Jesus invites us to get into close proximity with those who are suffering. Ignorance is not bliss. There is a cost for ignorance. So there's another group of people, and they exhibit a, a kind of spiritual blindness as well. Uh, there's a group of people called the Pharisees. And in the reading, you saw where they became a prominent part of the story. The story sort of plays out like a, a mystery, like a whodunit kind of thing. Who was it that healed on the Sabbath? I can't believe this happened. And the Pharisees come and they begin an investigation and they want to know who it is that made mud on the Sabbath and they want to know who it is that performed this miracle. And let me tell you about the Pharisees. They were... The, the prevailing religious, Jewish religious group at the time. Don't think about some elite group of people. Think about a very religious group of people. So they had wealthy and non-wealthy all like in the quote-unquote Pharisees. They were the church-going, tithe-giving, ministry-volunteering, people that would show up to church at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning kind of folk. The Pharisees. And they were trying to figure out what Jesus was all about. They couldn't believe that he would heal on the Sabbath. And they were operating under an assumption of certainty. They had a certain idea of who God was. They had a certain idea of the kinds of things that God would do. And Jesus comes on the scene and does something outside of those parameters. And it completely rocked their world. If you want to understand what it's like to be a Pharisee, Imagine a group of people walking around with a label maker. And everything had to be put into this category of clean or unclean. Everything had to fit in this dichotomy of, is it, is it clean or is it unclean? Is it good or is it bad? Is it 
evil or is it, is it, is it righteous? And so that's clean, that's clean. Bacon, unclean, which we would all say, are you sure about that? Have you ever had bacon? Because I think if you had bacon, you wouldn't label it unclean. There's there's nothing wrong with, with, I mean, I just can't imagine that. Clean, unclean, right, wrong. This is clean, this is unclean, this is kosher, this is not kosher. And Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. He's done something outside of their world of certainty. So therefore, this cannot be of God. And they bring the man in and they make him testify. And isn't it interesting? They say, give glory to God by telling the truth. Remember what Jesus said? You see, this man was healed so that God might receive glory. God might receive glory through this healing. And then the Pharisees, who are blinded by this illusion of certainty, they look at him and they say, give glory to God. Tell us, tell the truth. Is this man a sinner? And then the man gives glory to God, not the way they want him to. He says, verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He gives a testimony. He says something outside of their narrow ideological silo of certainty. He says, Something miraculous has broken into my life. I once lived in darkness. I couldn't see. I didn't know what was going on. But now I can see. I once was blind, but now I see. And the Pharisees have the opportunity to join in with what God is doing, to celebrate this miracle that has happened, but they're living in spiritual blindness. They're blinded by their obsession with certainty. And I think the same is true for us, that that living in spiritual blindness, it has the potential to keep us from seeing the danger of certainty. Friends, you're invited to trust in Jesus. You're invited to put your faith in him. But what Jesus doesn't give you is certainty. He gives you faith. He gives you you faith. My, My friend John Ortberg, well, he's my friend because I read his books. But, but John Ortberg says faith and doubt are two sides of one coin. He says let's not think that just because we have faith, all doubt is taken away. But faith and doubt are, are two sides of one coin. Jesus doesn't promise certainty, but he promises his presence. He promises clarity. He promises that he'll never, never forsake us. He promises to give us light for the next step. And if we're obsessed with with certainty and being certain about how God is working, we're susceptible to what we're going to call this morning single-story thinking. Single-story thinking. Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adichie, she describes the effects that labels can have, clean and unclean, good and bad, right and wrong, She describes the effect that labels can have when we think about ourselves and others in terms of only a single story. She describes the dangers of polarization and grouping one people into one camp and thinking about everything in this kind of us versus them dichotomy. And she writes this, 
I've always felt that it is impossible to engage properly with a place or a person without engaging with all of the stories of that place and that person. The consequence of the single story is this. It robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. Single story thinking. The Pharisees had one story. They had one way of seeing the world. And when Jesus didn't fit into that one way, then obviously he is a sinner. Now, you know we're susceptible to single-story thinking, right? I don't know if you knew this or not, but it's election season. It's already starting. We've got some primaries coming up. And then we're going to have a doozy in 2022. I promise you, it'll be the greatest election of your life. Because it's always the greatest election of your life, the most important one you'll ever vote in. And as I see people gearing up for the greatest election of your life, I see political ads that are inviting me to think about the world only in terms of a single story. Whatever candidate is on the TV, whatever ad pops up on my Facebook feed, that candidate is saying, everything's wrong with the world. The people I'm running against want to destroy you and your way of life. All of them are evil. Everything's broken, and I am the only one who can fix it. Vote for me. That is the narrative of every political ad you will see. It's single-story thinking. Because in 30 seconds, we can't parse out all the issues that public officials have to deal with. We've got 30 seconds, and we've got an attention span of like 15 seconds. And we got to have your vote. And so let's scare you to death and get you to parse the world out into us and them and just get, get enough to, to get you to show up and vote for me. Single story thinking. It's, it's destroying us. And followers of Jesus are invited to see the world in a different way, one that transcends this. One that says, maybe God is at work in ways that I can't perceive. Maybe God is at work in, in, in ways that, that I've never experienced before. Maybe God is doing a, a new thing, and I don't want to be ignorant to that, and I don't want to be so obsessed with certainty that I miss what God is doing. And so look towards the end of the story. Jesus invites us to, to see something different. Remember the man was blind? He never saw Jesus Jesus just put mud on his eyes and said, hey, go and wash. The man goes and washes. He washes the mud off of his eyes. He looks around. Jesus is gone. He's never actually seen Jesus. And Jesus reemerges into the story. And Jesus confronts him, or Jesus has an encounter with him, and he actually sees him for the first time. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus says, the one who you're speaking to, I am he, verse 37. You've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see. You see this man? He was blind. Now he sees. And make note of this. 
the miracle is not complete until he expresses faith. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. He's only washed the mud and and he's had this encounter with the Pharisees. But then he has this encounter with Jesus. He sees him for the first time. He confesses belief and then the miracle is complete. For judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Those who think they have a right perception of the world will realize their blind spots will realize what they're not seeing and what they're not understanding. You know, we often say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And that's probably good in life. There's a lot of scam artists out there. If you get an offer on your phone or on your email and it sounds too good to be true, guess what? It is. Hey, friend, don't give them your social security number. Don't give them my social security number either. I'll see it when I believe. We're naturally skeptical, aren't we? We're naturally skeptical. I'll see it when I believe it. But following Jesus is an invitation to do something else. It is to believe so that you might see. It is is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus so you can see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And when you see the world the way God sees it, it transforms you. And when you are transformed, you are then released to be a transformative agent in the world. But the seeing comes only after you believe. Only after you put your faith and trust in this story, the story of Jesus, the story that transcends all other stories, the the story that embraces all of our shared stories. Only when you put your faith and trust in Jesus are you able to see the world the way God wants you to see it. And the more we put our trust in Jesus, the more we see the world the way God does. We believe so that we might see. I was recently uh, working on a committee with some other community leaders. I don't know how I got on this committee. Uh, It was some pretty high-powered people. They had resources that I could only imagine. Uh, You know, I I deal with a budget here, and, and we're trying to do some things in our community, but But somehow I got on this committee and and this group of people were dealing with resources that had several more zeros than I've ever seen, either at the church or in my personal life. Several more zeros. I asked one, why did you ask me to be a part of this? And here was the testimony to what you do and who you are as a church. They said, we needed a faith leader whose church cared about this community. And so we asked you. And the only reason they asked me is because of you. So I was honored to be there. And so I'm on this committee, and this committee's talking about things that our, our community's facing. They're talking about affordable housing. They're talking about access to public trans- transportation. They're talking about racism. They're talking about food insecurity. All other kinds of issues that people living in poverty face on a daily basis. And what I've learned, being on this committee, is that all of those issues are all tangled up. And it's really hard to separate which one to deal with and how to deal with it because they're all connected. It's like untangling a slinky. Remember slinkies? They were fun until they got tangled up. 
And so now they're all tangled up. And do we address racism? Do we address food insecurity? Do we address affordable housing? What, what is it that we do with these resources that we have? So we're trying to untangle all of these things. And the leader of this committee, I'm not going to say his real name, but I'm going to call him Jay. And Jay had come out of the business world and was now working in nonprofit management. And in the middle of the meeting, as we're trying to untangle this slinky, he, he, he starts crying. And he starts, he starts sharing about how just 10 years ago, he was unaware of all this. He was ignorant to it. He turned a blind eye to these things that were going on in our world. And he also expressed that he was certain they were somebody else's problem. That whoever was dealing with this things, these things, it was their fault. They had made terrible choices. Somebody else could deal with that. And in the course of that meeting, he shared what changed his life. It was a personal tragedy. Something awful happened to his family. He experienced a loss that I hope none of us ever experience. And in the midst of experiencing this loss, in the recovery of that, he was connected to people who dealt with racism and affordable, lack of affordable housing. And he was connected with people living in poverty. And he was connected with people who didn't have access to transportation. He got in close proximity with people who were suffering and dealing with these things. And it's interesting that this tragedy was the catalyst that put Jay in close proximity with people that were dealing with these, these things and allowed him to see for the first time what he had missed his entire life. And I want us to think about the muck and the mud and the mire of life. How many of us are down in the midst of it? You're experiencing suffering. You're experiencing loss. You're experiencing things that you wish you weren't experiencing. What this story tells us is that Jesus, he takes that mud, takes that mud and that muck and that mire and that, those things that we're dealing with and he uses it for our healing. He uses it for our transformation. And so what Jesus can do when he comes along, he can come in the midst of that and, and take some of that mud and that muck and that mire and when put in the right place, can transform your life and help you to see things you've never seen before. And in the midst of that, somewhere along the way, G Jay went and he washed that away. And when it all was washed away and when the dust settled, his eyes were open. He began to see Northwest Arkansas differently. He began to see people differently. He began to see the world the way God sees it. And I think it began with him surrendering to that. I think it began with him just praying a very simple prayer that says, Lord, would, would you help me to see the world the way you see it? Would you help me to love the way you love? Would you help me to listen the way you listen? Friends, that's a faithful prayer.